how can you be part of a religious community that straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold the church on. seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers i would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most vocal political voice against immigration churches still the one they claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good American anti-critical than they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Before we get into this interview today, I wanted to share something with the Church Needs Therapy listeners. Today, my interview is with Dr. Mallory Wyckoff. And before you listen to the interview, I wanted to let you know that she is leading a retreat in Nashville, Tennessee from January 13th through the 15th. This retreat is called Listening to Your Life Retreat. Some of the questions as you think about this retreat. Do you need time and space carved out for reflection and rest? Do you sense a shifting in your life, spiritually, relationally, vocationally, etc., and want to navigate it with care? Do you desire to engage your inner world more deeply? Do you long to explore your spirituality and sense of God with curiosity, honesty, and courage? Those are some of the questions that introduce you to the kind of space that is going to happen on this retreat. Nashville, Tennessee, January 13th through 15th, listening to your life retreat. I wanted to let you know before the interview. So if during the interview, you're like, whoa, I want to hear more. This is a person who can guide me. This is a person I want to continue to listen to and gain wisdom from. Remember to come back to this moment so you can learn more information. And if you want to know all of the details for the retreat, go to MalloryWyckoff.com and you will find the tab for retreats and it will show you this specific retreat and it will give you all of the information you need. January 13th through 15th, listening to your life retreat. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy and today... Our guest is Mallory Wyckoff. And Mallory is a writer, speaker, spiritual director, and peacemaker. It'd be interesting to think about, despite how connected those are, which one of those is actually the most difficult at times because they're all so unique. She serves as key relationships officer with preemptive love, a global community of peacemakers working to end war and stop the spread of violence. She completed her dissertation on the impact of sexual trauma on survivors' theological perception and spiritual formation. Mallory has a demon in missional and spiritual formation. In all her work, Mallory is a trusted voice for people seeking to navigate their spirituality with curiosity, honesty, and courage. And she lives with her husband and two daughters. Is that right? Two daughters? Yeah. In Florida, and she says, despite hating seafood and being under the age of 65. Is, is that really like, is that stereotype true about Florida? Like that's where older people go to retire on the East Coast? <laughs> uh, yeah, 100%. And to be clear, I'm not saying I hate, I hate the seafood. I don't hate being under 65. It's just that despite the fact that I am, yeah. uh, I'm not retired and far from it, I live in Florida. 
this is home. I, I think that one of the only reasons I know that about Florida is like Seinfeld. Like my house growing up was a very Seinfeld house. And it was like, we're going to Florida or like Jerry's parents live in Florida or something like that. Cause they're from the East coast. Yeah. Um, yeah, in, uh, Del Boca Vista, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it is a lovely place here. And her new book, God Is, which we'll be talking about today, is out now. So available anywhere online that you can get that. So the Mallory Wyckoff, the book is titled God Is, if you want to check that out. So let's stop there. Mallory, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally today for the interview, but also with all of the listeners as well. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, friend. Yes. Um, I always think about, you know, for writers, even for like theology professors or whoever it is, you know, people think about the content of the work, but not people in theology don't always think about what they do as creative or as a part of the creative process. But it obviously is, you know, whenever you're writing and forming and creating, regardless of the medium, and regardless of what you're saying, that's the, that's a universal connection with people is that creative thing. And I think about for projects, the actual, you know, engine and catalyst for something, you know, for, so for people who teach and preach and write, there could be times, this is an example where you're watching a movie and it comes to like the crescendo and there's one line a character says, and that one line hits you and you're like, that's a teaching, that's a sermon, that's a book, that's a chapter. Even though you're not saying exactly what they said, that one engine did something to you that opened something up where you saw what this could be. You know, we all have our unique think ways that happen. So for the book, what was the initial energy source and engine that really got this project going? So I've thought about this a lot lately and I've, I've written about it a little bit, but thinking about how really, so to peel back, you know, my training primarily is in theology. So particularly as I'm thinking about engaging commentaries, right. And various primary sources as you're piecing together a sermon or whatever, you're doing any sort of exegetical work, right. There's all of these external sources and they can be helpful, right. But for this particular project, for this thing, this, this creative act, as you so rightly names that I felt very much wanted to come through me and into the world, the primary source is my story. It's my life. There are risks to centering your own story. Um, certainly. And I talk about some of those in the book, but my experience has just been that my story and my embodied reality keeps telling me the truth in a way that even some of those other sources and texts are not right. And uh, so that I, I just, I wanted to stay there and really seek to be fully awake to and paying attention to my life and the ways that I have evolved and taken various shapes and forms throughout my almost 35 years and then as part of that, really paying attention to the ways that God has also shown up in unique forms, forms, uh, some of which I now reject, some of which I continue to carry with me, but at, at whatever rate, there's just this continued evolution of my understanding of the divine and the shapes and forms that she takes, the names that I ascribe to God, et cetera. And as I write about early in the book, that those two elements, that is right. My own kind of evolving, expanding self. And then my evolving, expanding sense of God have been like two, two waves kind of moving together in the ocean. I cannot separate one from the other, right. They, they have both been part 
part of the very same journey for me. And so just spending time really paying attention to that is part of where kind of the energy behind this book came, as well as then in paying attention to those things, looking at, okay, what are the implications of this beyond just my own story and narrative, but really thinking about how, and I, and I talk about this throughout, but the ways that we think about God necessarily inform the way we think about everything and everyone else. And so even though I'm talking about particulars of, of my story or particular images or metaphors for the divine, the reality is we're pointing to the universal or pointing to the much larger picture to say, how might this way of engaging God shape the way that we expand the way that we change the way that we think about everything and everyone else ourselves included. And to me, that's, that's really the crux of the conversation. Yeah, which which is so important. And that's why when people are not used to or have not taken the time or have not looked or been introduced to voices that have been traditionally been on the margins and have been marginalized, you know, by larger systems. I'm like, even in different conversations I've had, I'm like, when you study womanist thought, you're studying the, the reflection on God coming out of experience of black women and you read it, you're like, it's flowing from the particularity of that experience. You're like, but this is, this is, has something to say for everybody. Right. This is not just for specific women who have had this experience under this system, but what they're saying is actually providing a glimpse and these images beyond what we're used to that are actually have the capacity to invite everybody forward and everybody into new ways of seeing and relating to God, each other and all of reality itself, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, yeah, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would, absolutely. And that's one of the greatest travesties of any time you have a group that has been separate from whatever the sort of norm or default or accepted standard has been that those groups remain often in the particulars, right? So it's almost like, so by, by way of example, um, it, it, what gets to appear is like this general sort of neutral setting of a, of a community of a worship space but the women's group is going to meet separately. And that's where they will talk about some of the things I write about in the book. Right. But it, mm. it is it's segmented. It's sidelined in its own particular way. Cause it's assumed and this is only for this one particular group, but, but as you name so well, with this example of womanist theology, no, this is inviting each and every one of us to, uh, to deliberation. Right. And when you encounter a wider, uh, more open, more expansive understanding of, everything of yourself, of God, my experience has at least been, I get angry that those have not been open to me the whole time, right? That, that some of these views and voices have been sidelined because I know even though myself, I'm not a person of color, I am being so radically formed and, and shaped and changed by these voices, by these particular embodied theologies and liberation theologies that I, I am so sad that I lived any of my life without that, right? And I only got this one or two other ways or these other constructs of understanding um, that it that it it certainly makes me that much more passionate about wanting to bust those doors wide open to say there are so many voices here who have something to say about the nature of the divine. May mm. we never ever keep those doors closed ever again. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful and empowering for people when you talk about not centering your own story, when we think about like larger constructs of whiteness or whatever it is, but centering in the sense of like, this is my life. This is my embodied experience. This is the only way I see, experience, interpret and give 
my life to the world. Like my life, the life of God is flowing in me and through me and as me. And this is my story. And that makes me think, you know, James Finley says like God always or only comes to us autobiographically because this is the medium. This is how we interface with the world. And I think the permission for people to specifically for the book, name God out of their own experience, yeah, connected with their tradition, but out of their own embodiedness through what they're doing. It's, it's funny because it's, it could be a sense of permission, but that's what we all do. Sure. Like we're just, even if it's uncritical, that's what people are doing because we're flowing out of who we are. Right. It is absolutely our only option. It is what we do. And I will say, I think some of us in particular have been conditioned to believe that that actually doesn't have much validity. Mm. People are doing theology on the fly at all times, right? Whether they even know what that word means or not, <laughs> that's just what we do is we only have our, our lived reality from which to make sense of all things, right? From which to make sense of the divine, et cetera. Um, but for some of us, we have not been told or not been given that permission that you mentioned to believe that actually that is the very space in which um, there is, there, there are words for, for naming God here to be found that only can be found in and through your experience. And, and that there's an invitation for you to name those in a fuller way um, to a fuller audience, even right. I know uh, that particularly for, for women, though, that's certainly not the only group, but mm. we're often conditioned to believe, no, actually the real sources of authority are external to you. Mm. And so that's part of why even one of the chapters I write about God as being wisdom within it's this idea of reconnecting to believe, no, you have wisdom inside of you, right? You have access to this at all times and the ability to do that sort of theology work, um, regardless of what your, your training is, regardless of what your sensibilities are. And like you say, even sometimes it's in uncritical ways, but it's still, this is the only place that we, we have to make meaning of. And so, um, if that the theology then that, that, um, people create the, the, they, these systems of understanding that they construct, if those don't then also have purpose and meaning and value in the particularities of our lived experience, then they're pretty worthless. Right. Um, I use this line in, in the book about like thinking about hands digging in, in the dirt and tending to soil or hands that are, are changing diapers or that are caring for aging parents. And it's like, if theology can, cannot meet you in the flesh and blood reality in those places, it's not worth the shit you get on your hands when you do those tasks. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And so part of it is seeing, seeing that for yourself, but also looking looking at are there ways that that either yourself or particular groups have not been given permission to believe mm. no this is actually the very site of where you you are being invited to engage mm. Mm. yeah you so with with the embodiedness with, with with what you're describing of particularities in the book so you write and sort of talking about the book you know those who have felt alienated by the typical ways of describing god in christianity will meet god anew so you're providing fresh metaphors and images with the focus on feminine with a certain degree of focus on feminine images and metaphors as well. Here's my question. And we've already started getting at some of these things. Why is this ability? Why are these new metaphors and images and, or the, the sense of freedom to create our own images and metaphors out of our own embodied experience? Why is this liberating 
and empowering for some? And why would it be, let's say for those who haven't felt alienated, who have not been marginalized, who have had access to privilege and power, so namely in our context, white males, why would that group of people not see some of this as liberating and immediately empowering, but they might have resistance or they might have problems with some of these alternative metaphors? Like it's liberating for some, but there's an immediate resistance by other groups. Why would that happen to different groups of people? Sure. Well, just to say, or do you think, or do you think most white guys in power are on board with everything you're saying in all of these alternatives? No, always. Uh, No, just to say first that, you know, sometimes even both the welcomed liberation or the resistance don't often come in the camps that you might expect, even, right? Right. There are even uh, certainly some women readers, I think, who are going to encounter resistance when they read some of this. It, it is different than what they've been given. And for all of us, it is very easy to conflate our prior experiences of God or beliefs about God with God, right? We believe that they're actually one in the same and we don't allow any sort of distance between those two. And so when you, when someone begins to come along and write a book like this, right. And begins to talk about this, this lens through which we view God, these beliefs, these understandings, these images, then people think you're actually changing God's own self. Right. And what I'm simply Mm -hmm. saying is, no, we've one, those are two separate things. And two, we've been given one singular lens really by and large through which to view and understand the, the divine nature. And it is necessarily limiting. And I think it is absolutely just as limiting whether or not you and your embodied reality reflect the image of God that is most often presented. That is, you know, this old white man, right. Or even just a, a white, white man in general, general, um, even if that is your embodiment, and, and therefore, you have the privilege of connecting to God in those particular ways and seeing yourself represented in God in those ways. You are still being limited in that regard, because even so, there are still narratives saying this is the right way to be the white male. This is what power looks like. This is this is a level of vulnerability that is allowed or not allowed. Right. This is what you can or can't do with your your emotions. This is what you should or shouldn't care about. All those narratives are still very much connected with any of those um, those images that project and say this is what it means to be man. This is what it means to be white, whatever. And those are all limiting. So for any of us, whether, you know, I myself and my embodiment am not reflected in that male God or someone who, who is, I think the invitation stands just the same for any of us to actually see that there's always more to the divine nature uh, in some ways that feel similar to our own experience, right? We get to see ourselves reflected there and also beyond that. So even right in the book, right, that that God is, is all and none of these things that I'm saying <laughs> about God, right? Because ultimately we're always talking about mystery and and the more and the, the beyond. Um, but hopefully that never stops us from, from still trying to say things that are meaningful and, and worthwhile. To get it to a really particular place in my own experience, why this has been so important and liberating for me as a woman is that I have not found myself, my embodiment, my reality reflected in the language for the divine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the pronouns that are used for, for God. 
in so much of, of religious and, and Christian literature, in, in hymnology, in theology, um, in, in rituals, in just you know regular kind of vernacular. Uh, it, I don't fit into that, right? I'll never be a father. I don't understand that experience fully. Um, I can't access it in the way that I can access mother. I know what it, the experience of being mother. And if my only way of engaging God is through some sort of mediated experience to go, well, I'm not like father, but I can try to understand it through someone else. Then there's this, this distance that is, is created that is fundamentally collapsed when that distance is collapsed, when instead I get to just engage God as mother and immediately she comes to mind. Immediately. I have an image for what that knows. I know what, I know what it feels like for me to have my three-year-old's, you know, head on my chest the night before as I rocked her to sleep. I can recall that image as then I seek a space, a bosom like that, where I can feel safe and loved and known and at rest and peace, right? That's a different thing than if God is only construed in masculine ways, because that's not my reality. That's not my experience. And so I just got tired of having to always translate things for myself and translate these experiences and to always have to, to encounter God in media in these mediated ways to instead just go, Nope, God is more than that. And God can be reflected in my own lived experience. And I want to write about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read a quote of yours to get at the, the second part of the resistance, you know, by groups in power who are you, who are fine with these metaphors used to the convention, the convention benefit from the systems that sort of have this language as a part of the culture. You write, I think it's in the, uh, I think it's in the N word, the last, like a conclusion where it's just God is. And you write, you can't defend chattel slavery or Jim Crow segregation if God is a black woman. You can't keep women subordinated in their place if God is sacred feminine. You can't deny the dignity and humanity of the LGBTQ folks if God dances in and through and around every binary a culture can erect and, and sacralize. And you end that part by saying you can't amass weapons and fortresses and call it holy if God is a vulnerable peacemaker who transmutes violence rather than perpetuates it. So with that said, why would people who are used to power be uncomfortable with, with new images and metaphors for God? Because right. there is, why mm -hmm. would there be a resistance to or an uncomfortability with alternative images beyond God as father, masculine images, et cetera? Is that a threat? Does that make people feel uncomfortable? What do, what do you think is a little bit of what's happening there? Mm -hmm. I think it's happening at different levels. Sometimes it's just a very basic, this is new, this is different than what I've been given before. And so my default is to feel a sense of resistance, right? It's like and, the crudes. It's like the crudes movie. Like if it's new, it's scary or bad or whatever. Precisely, and <laughs> none of us is immune to that, right? That's that's a natural response for so many of us. And so, I anytime I'm I'm engaging these types of conversations with folks, I'm always wanting to engender the sense of curiosity, right? Rather than judgment or critique for whatever surfaces in me, even to the resistance, is like, oh, I noticed that I felt this this. I, oh, I felt like I I rose up there for a second, almost like to combat what I was just hearing i'm curious what's behind that you know what what what's fueling that sense of of resistance that i'm feeling so sometimes it's just at that it's that at that level and that's natural and normal i think to our the ways that we're wired as human beings to evolutionary processes etc and thankfully we're not stuck there right we have the capacity to think really thoughtfully and critically and then to move forward into more uh, expansive and gracious ways of of making meaning sometimes it happens there 
Um, and it also happens at, at larger and more systemic levels where if, um, it, well, let me just pull back for a second and just acknowledge that even when we say God, what we're talking about is it's the symbol for what we believe to be and ascribe to be uh, the greatest um, idea or concept or sense of, of power, of truth, of beauty, of love, right? Um, that it's this symbol for all, all of the greatest things we can imagine. We ascribe to that, that word, that idea of, of God, right? That God somehow stands at the center of, but also is holding all of this, of, of reality together, holding the cosmos together, right? Um, issues it, it, it forth and is bringing it to some beautiful end. That, that's what we mean when we even use that language of God. So then if you have uh, an image that we understand that God, that we make sense of that God that only reflects a certain group of people and, and largely, at least in my experience, and I think in, in Christianity as a whole, uh, it has been as, as a white male, then that allows you to then also ascribe those same, the same pinnacle of all of those things mm. to that particular type of person right? They also reflect the highest level of power, of esteem, of importance, of worth, of, of dignity, etc. If you have systems and structures that, that are erected that way, then when someone comes in and says, actually, God is like this, or here's another way of understanding God, then it's necessarily calling into question the whole way that you you structured that that system, right? Because it requires that same sort of hierarchy of of God and of and of humanity. So of course there's going to be plenty of resistance to this notion because as you you know you read from that that excerpt, like it's just a lot harder to deny people their dignity, their voice, their power, their agency when you're praying to a God who looks like them. But if God, the God that you pray to, the God that that surfaces in your mind when you even sit down to pray or you engage spirit, if that God is never once looks like your neighbor, you're going to have a very different connection with your neighbor. You're going to have a very different connection from yourself, right? Like as I talked earlier about, if you're not reflected in that God. But if the God that I pray to keeps showing up, up as a black woman, which for the last several years, that's how God continues to reveal herself to me, the, the particular form that she she takes most often in my meditations and my my prayers and, and engagement, then that is necessarily going to change the way I look at black women in the world, right? It's going to change the way I listen to them, the way I believe their stories, the wisdom that I'm longing to gain from their experiences, the um, the anger that I feel at the injustice and oppression that they continue to bear in a number of ways. Uh, it's going to going to um, inform my my passion and desire to see that injustice and oppression squashed, etc. If you are not interested in that, you know that conversation taking place because that will change. Um, your access to power, then yeah, you're going to resist this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> I think those conversations and naming some of those ways and even like the graciousness and the wisdom to be like, look, when there's an immediate resistance to something that's just new, that's normal. Your ego contracts. There's something un unfamiliar. This is the response, but there is a space beyond that, especially when you recognize that to start moving forward in new ways and then to speak to the larger, you know, systemic resisting clinging, which from my perspective at this unique cultural moment we're in, in the U S specifically, there's a lot of clinging 
to power. There's a lot of clinging to whiteness and to old ways that things have just been able to operate, not uncritically, but the voices have been so on the margins, you know, that I think people have been able to stay in the same spaces, you know, when a much more isolated way and much more comfortably, but now it's getting harder and harder for people to ignore Mm-hmm. injustice to ignore a lot of the, the the history of the United States of America. And when people are growing through stages, if there starts to be cracks in the surface or you start to be introduced or forcefully through protests or whatever is introduced to alternative ways of seeing some people can start to open those cracks lead to openings to the possibilities of starting to see beyond. But for people who contract and are unwilling for that, they have to cling even harder to sure. hold on because it's un- they, they can't do it. So like, I never really thought about it because I'm forced to start to think about ways I have to cling harder. And there's appears to be a lot of the strengthening of that clinging, the digging in of heels appears to be one collective response by groups of people right now, you know, who I think would feel threatened by new possibilities and new ways of not just of seeing God, but of engaging and just being in the world. Right. You almost know, switch up with, with, with your, uh, with your experience growing up, right? So a church kid, was that in Florida? Yes, I was okay. here my first 18 years of life and then moved away for about 16 years and just recently came back. Right, okay, so Florida, church kid, you know, you described the different Mallory's leading up to when you were writing the book. So it's, you know, it's God is father. That's great. That's a warm thing for my experience. You know, then this age, it's God is friend and you talk about growing and having some new ways of seeing then taking an international trip. And eventually you say, I go to seminary where there appears to be some massive disruptions to your faith towards your way of seeing and relating to God. And that's, that's always interesting for me. Like when I ask about the engine of a book, but what's also interesting for me, especially right now, where deconstruction and people's first big paradigm shifts, the first time they're reflecting on the fact they have a lens, God isn't like, whenever they say God, they're naming their understanding of God that's actually been handed to them and start reworking that and reimagining and taking things apart. Like what were some of those really important? Cause you use the word demolition, I think to talk about, you know, your understanding of God during that time. What were some of the major disruptions for you in your journey of knowing and understanding God? Because some it's I read a Brian McLaren book 15 years ago, or I, you know, went on a trip. My best friend came out as gay. And all of a sudden I'm like, people have these different initial catalyst cracks in the surface that start inviting them beyond and start seeing different futures. So for you, demolition is a strong word. What were some of those first big disruptions where you're like, whoa, whoa, like this is exciting and scary and I'm going and I can't stop it. But what does that mean? You know, like that kind of thing. Totally. The first and, and yeah, the first significant one was when I was about 16, I think, and uh, spent several weeks in a hurricane refugee village in um, Guatemala. And, you know, even as I say it, I feel a sense of like, gosh, there's all sorts of things to, to say in, in relation to short-term mission trips, right? And I we could talk about that for days and I have all my own sorts of feelings about it. And at the same time, the reality is that, that this experience for me was absolutely life-changing because it 
I, I was a relatively, you know, privileged kid who was suddenly face to face with poverty in a way I had not encountered before. And I was also face to face with um, sacred text in a way that I had not encountered him before. And that's not to say that I had not engaged the Bible, right? I, I grew up in a Christian home, was at a private Christian school from preschool all the way through 12th grade. You know, my extended family all identified within this tradition, most of my friends. So I didn't lack for that, that sort of experience or engagement. But I began to engage with texts that never had been shown to me before, never been, you know, taught on never emphasized, right? In fact, anything they ever mentioned was fairly de-emphasized because faith up to that point was just this idea of basically we're trying to make you something other than human and rescue you from being from being human, rescue you from your humanity. And then you huddle around with people who are also pretending to be something other than human. And eventually you'll be fully hold rescued. Hold on, just hold on. We'll be at um and really even that way i mean we're laughing but like the language is often as crass as that right and just as stark and and disturbing as that right um so now all of a sudden i am being exposed to texts that seem to emphasize god's uh heart towards justice god's preference for um people who have been marginalized oppressed who are on the sidelines of society god's seems all of a sudden to be really concerned about providing um material uh, like um providing the resources that people need and didn't have access to and then also addressing the systems that created those inequities in the first place and i just thought i have never seen this before this was never this is not the faith that was given to me it was as if mm. it was a faith entirely mm. and so with that honestly that experience and then the questions it began to stir in me shifted the course of of my life um, in such a way that I've continued to been one, been one to just continue to ask those questions as they come. And that's ultimately, you know, what eventually led me to seminary some years later, it was less of an academic pursuit and much more of, I just want a space to be able to ask these questions and hope that I'll be able to encounter people who aren't as threatened by them as some of the other folks in my life at the time, you know, were, there just wasn't the space that you could, you could question these, uh, these structures, um, and uh, without people being really afraid for you and clearly, you know, this clear sense of deep concern for you and for your, your sense of faith and spirituality. Um, and so also that was one of the most significant ones. And then, you know, seminary, of course, was, was a really disruptive time because well, what, it, it what, brought what, it- were, what were there like at seminary, right? It's just like, you go there, you're like, if you want to, unless it's a, like, unless it's like extremely fundamentalist place, it's like, if you want to be sure of and have more confidence holding on to the current beliefs you have, like seminary is not the right place to do that. And so for you going there, what were it, was it like, I'm really, I'm really interested in like in the specifics, like, was it this class or this books or this one writer like that, those moments that were like, okay, now things are really unraveling and coming apart, not in a negative way, you know, as a whole, but like, think, okay, this is, this is continuing. I'm going further with this right now. Mm. You know, it feels less like, you know, one or two particulars and more of just the larger experience of seeing this array of options. So even, even if you're talking about a particular text or a particular idea or, or whatever, you, you go to the library and you find that there's 37 different books on, on this topic or 37 different commentaries, and they're all saying at times different things. 
And, and oftentimes with the same level of assurance that they've got it right, that experience alone, right. It doesn't take, take, mm. but a couple times of doing that when you're, you're researching a, an exegetical paper or whatever, and you're going, huh, <laughs> this is a very, a very different framework than the one I was given, which said, this is the right way. You know, we've, we've got it figured out pretty much by and large, mm. the things where there was room for, um, for difference in were pretty small and, and, and considerable, but we weren't it, it, with, you know, the things I was writing about in seminary, these weren't small and insignificant things. We're talking about something like a concept of salvation. Okay. That's central to this understanding of faith. And you have, there's, like enough- thir- and there's 30 books. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's just one shelf. Right. But Everyone is saying different things, has different takes and different understandings. And so I think it was just that continued experience over and over of the plurality and the multitude of, of expressions, um, of, of understandings, even sometimes if they were just slightly nuanced, but oftentimes they're more substantive difference, right? That just, it's like it began to, to break some things up for me, to begin to, uh, to allow me at a, in an even deeper and further in level to go, okay, there's more here than I thought previously, right? There's more than I've been, I've been given. And that can be really, as I mentioned earlier, that can be really disconcerting, disorienting, disruptive, especially because if you've had experiences with the divine and I, and I have, right. There've been, there've been clear moments, whether, whether in just kind of the day-to-day reality or some of those, like if, if you write your autobiography, you're going to include these five or six moments, right? I've had those experiences, but when you have them, you make sense of them within a particular structure. So when that structure begins to, to be challenged or it no longer it feels compelling to you, then it's absolutely going to make you question the experiences you had within that structure of understanding. Mm-hmm. Right? And right. so it takes some time to go, no, I know that that was this really real and true and beautiful encounter wherein I engaged spirit or I sensed God moving in me or, or whatever. That was true. The ways that I'm coming to understand and make sense of and make meaning from that, that's changing. That's evolving. But the essence of that experience is still very true and real for me. Mm. That, that type of work has been essential for me to even still, if I'm, you know, to be able to be at this point and go, yeah, I still have a faith sensibility, right? I still am interested in things of, of spirituality. Um, it's been essential for me, but it's also a really hard, that's hard work for a lot of people. I mean, that takes some, some deep inner work because it also calls into question so many other stru- structures and, and systems. Some of the ones we've, we've already talked to, but at this point, I don't know another way. Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that I think for people who are, growing and evolving, changing, dismantling, looking for new ways of reconstructing or whatever, that to me seems to be a defining thing. Cause you know, you say we have an experience of something, there's something real there, but that happens within a particular interpretive framework, this lens I have to see reality, this stage of faith, the stage of consciousness. And my only option is to interpret it and make sense of it within that. And now seven years goes by five years, three years or whatever. Now I'm in an environment that's challenging, questioning and dismantling the structure. And it's a challenge to retroactively look back and say, the structure was a finite constructed thing, which is what we do. That was helping me make sense of there. But when the structure starts to change, evolve or fall apart, how then do I think about the actual substance of that experience, spirit, God, grace, love, connection, create like creative source, whatever that, that which holds me together, whatever it is, 
And for some people without substantive, right? This is, you know, what the mystics talk about without a direct experience of God, without a personal knowing of the divine, if the structure goes and there was no actual substance, it feels like everything goes. Like you didn't just deconstruct or take dismantle my understanding of God. When you did that, it actually felt like God as a whole disappeared because for some people, they have the structure without the substance. They don't, maybe they haven't had direct experience, no judgment, but they may have never experienced that or felt that with themselves. Or the process is for some people, there's something real there. I have experienced God, this warm sense of in that moment, moment I knew I was okay. And in, mm-hmm. in, the, in a world that is unsafe, there's something deeper that told me I'm safe, right? That paradox of what to me, what it means to be a human. And that to me is such an important thing of you're reworking the structure and how do you stay connected to in tune with and flowing in the substance that is flowing beneath and always remaining beyond those structures. And that's really hard. It's a hard thing to make sense of a faith beyond belief, a faith that's before and beyond our beliefs, even our relationship with beliefs changes as we grow. And there's a, whenever we're, we're growing, whether it's in a personal sense of you're brushing up against old ego boundaries that you thought were a part of your bounded self and you're discovering, oh, myself is actually beyond this. And I can live beyond these boundaries of fear, live beyond a sense of boundaries of who I thought I was or in how we see we're moving beyond old boundaries of seeing and thinking Anytime you push up against a boundary and start to sense life beyond it, or if someone invites you beyond it, there's an element of fear because sure. you're, it's, it's stepping into the unknown. It's stepping into uncertainty that to me, that's what, when faith really has its teeth is, will you step beyond what you thought was you? Will you step beyond what you thought was God? And ironically, perhaps it's the spirit inviting us beyond those very places. Right. And when I think about change, I remember so I have this like unique awakening moment with God. I wasn't really strong and I didn't go to any evangelical stuff growing up. Right. I wasn't really dogmatic about anything. I have this unusual experience with God while I was on mushrooms and then end up at a Bible college three or four years later. And they were like, here's God, here's the framework. And it was cool. Like, I'm like, you have to learn the rules to know how to break them. That's what Bible college was for me. And I'm super grateful for that. And I had a good experience with people. I just soon, I didn't have to be there that long to be like, my life is beyond just this, but I'm grateful for this because it helped ground me. Right. And I remember I never like bought into the rapture. Like really? Like, I don't, I didn't really even have settled beliefs on either. I was just like, I don't know. I didn't grow up with this. This is crazy. And I just, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not trying to come to any conclusions now. Everyone here seems to think about it, whatever. And I remember reading Doug Padgett has a book called A Christianity Worth Believing. So this is like the summer of, I don't know, 2008-ish. And my wife and I's apartment in Costa Mesa, California, I'm like sitting by the pool reading. And he just presents such a compelling and beautiful vision of new creation. And we're not escaping here. We're healing this. And in that moment, it like all clicked. And I was like, I don't like the rap no to the rapture just no like this is this this is this the story's healing the story is oneness it's not escaping and it clicked and it made sense and right when it did my heart sunk into my stomach and i was like it's you a part of you's like am i really going here 
Because mm-hmm. in that moment, I know this puts me at odds with the school I'm a part of. This puts mm-hmm. me at odds with my peers. And that changes relationships. It changes mm-hmm. opportunities. Like you're, you can immediately recognize that. It's like your body makes all these connections right away. And there's a sense of, wow, that's, it's scary even to come to this conclusion. It's exciting. And I believe it and I'm happy and I'm grateful, but something in me is also scared when I see it, you know? Mm -hmm. So what is exciting about when those moments, these new ways that where it's liberating, but also what is that scary element that can settle in? Why is it also hard? Why, why does it require so much courage to grow in how we Mm -hmm. see? Yeah. You know, I think at this point in life, I've had enough of these movements and iterations and these sort of like clear evolutionary shifts where it's like you, you've turned a page and you can't kind of, you go back, whatever the new, the new sense of understanding is, um, that I, I approach them with excitement. You know, at this point, that really is my, my dominant, um, feeling there's a sense of anticipation and because I feel moved by love capital L love into this next right there's even times where I have I have even a year out I have sent spirit say there's another one coming be on the lookout for it and I'm just trying to pay attention to like I'm not trying to make it happen too fast I'm just okay I in fact I wear a, a bracelet that I have the words um open and expand engraved on it because two years ago those are the words I kept hearing God name, right. That that's, that was the invitation to me. And I was going to come in a way I hadn't even expected, expected quite so before. Um, and so I do, I get excited about them at this point. Um, and certainly there's times where there is some of the fear or just, or just the naming of, of what this, the tensions this could bring, like you said, it can put you at odds with people that you love. Um, I would say what I have found to be the most helpful exercise for me in this process is to look at it through all through the, the eyes of, of love, because if I see this as a linear process that I'm getting better or more and more, right. Right. I'm getting closer to, to kind of ascertaining the, the whole truth. Then I look back with eyes of judgment and critique on myself. And I do so for other people. Cause I'm looking at going, Oh, I see the stage that they're in right now they're clearly wrong. And I've, I've got it more right here. If I I do the same, you know, with myself, I look back at different versions of, of Mallory before and the ways that she made sense of the world and her different interpretive systems. If I go, Oh, okay. That was, I was wrong then, but I'm right now. I, I find that language to be terribly unhelpful and actually pretty harmful. So if instead I can first look back through the eyes of love at all of those Mallory's, even with the awful bangs, right. Even with the ridiculous emo outfit or whatever the phase was at the time, right. Mm-hmm. If I can look back and love all of those Mallory's before, then it helps me better um, hold curiosity for why, why was that? Why did that feel so true and real for her at that time? Right. Making sense of that and going, yeah, okay. That was true for her then. Mm. Here's what's true now, because that also allows for me to go, I don't have it figured out here. There's going to be more movement. There's going to be another shift, right? There's going to be this another iteration of Mallory coming. So I'm open to that. And then I hold humility towards what is, what feels real and true now, right? It doesn't mean I reject it or say, well, it's all relative. No, it feels really real and true. Now I'm having a very real encounter with my capital S self, with, with God, with others, et cetera. 
that also then helps me to look through the eyes of love for other people in whatever iteration of faith or understanding they are in, even if it's what feels like a, a much earlier one and they're happy there, right? They're not really willing to push even some of that like preservation instinct, like you were talking about earlier. It's hard for me to not judge that because I have felt it impinging on me within certain systems and structures, right? That they had their head cocked back over their shoulder and they had that, that strong sense of like, we want to dig in our heels and preserve what has been. And I'm just going, no, that is not the energy that I feel within me. The energy within me is pulling me forward. Same energy I think is pulling the universe forward, right. In the sense of expanding uh, this, this sense of expansion. That's, that's a hard one for me to not judge, but if I can get to the particular level and think about individuals within that system, imagine the fear that comes up for them, right? That sense of anxiety that comes up uh, when they imagine a different way. Um, or if I can go, yeah, I see how this is working for them, right? I see what this is, what they're gaining through this. I do the very same thing, right? I, I, I um, find space in a certain system or structure because it's giving me something, right? There's some sort of benefit to this way of understanding and it's not until I get to the point where I see where it's starting to work against me that I begin to push push against it and, and transcend it. So if I can help, if I can look at other folks in whatever iteration of, of self and faith and understanding that they're in through that sense of that lens of, of love going, that's what's true for them right now. And then seek to be a companion in any way I'm being invited to in their own continued expansion. That feels like a much more generous, life-giving um approach and posture than some of the others that I've taken, some of the others that are available to us that I just don't want to be about anymore. Yeah. No, that's, that's so good. And I'm glad that, that you say that because it's, it's the, the, the time we're in, it's so easy where there'd be moments where you see, you know, friends from seminary or people you connect with now and, their presence, you know, how they engage and relate to people, whether it's online or however you see them. And there's certain things that'll be said where you're like, it's not that I disagree with the content. Cause yeah, I'm probably more, or I am more aligned with you on this, but the overall oppositional antagonistic energy that's driving that again and again is also something that is unhelpful and unnecessary. Cause you know, when obviously you know, or, or not obvious to everybody, but more and more people are aware of that idea of transcending and including. So it's like, yes, I know that you've read all this books and it's cool. I've read those too. And I love them, but it's not hard to sense the energy when somebody's still in that anger, oppositional fighting the old, which usually has to do with them also being able to extend compassion and accept those parts of their own journey. For me, those are always connected, but that's the thing of, we can continue to grow and we can allow ourselves the freedom to allow God to invite us as far and to let the chips of thinking and theology in our life fall wherever they may. That's for me, like how I am. Like I let this just keep going. Yeah. And especially when you're like, I'm more alive, more filled with joy, more at peace. How could this be bad? Like for me, there's this simple, like we just keep going without needing to manipulate force or coerce people to be where we are and that compassion which i remember like when when you and i and jason were speaking at the event we were just at it's like i can do that and challenge it and invite people forward but it's like do you know what you're asking a 50 year old person to do to change his belief that's their whole life 
You're asking them to dismantle, like that's a lot. And I, and I will invite people for it, but also have the compassion to know that's not an easy thing to do for anybody to change, especially when your entire sense of belonging, sense of self has been attached to this community and tribalist way of seeing for that long. Like that's really hard. And that's a real person mm-hmm. who has a lot. We all have a lot going on, you know, like that's a, so to me, that's such a, a gift and so much of the energy we need moving forward is people who can boldly and courageously keep going and be willing to call that out and invite people forward. But it's like, but we're also not here to shame, be angry at people who aren't on that journey because they're not, everyone's going to be on the go to the same places. So to me, that, that dynamic is so, so important right now. Um, since we're coming to an end and some of my questions are not going to be answered, the challenges of growing, changing, we talked about this again when, when we were when we were talking like community, family, tradition. You're like, I want my kids to have that cool Christmas moment with some sort of kids thing. And I am here. How do I participate? Like that dynamic. In the midst of your experience of that, for you right now, where are the concrete spaces, Im- embodied spaces of hope or resurrection that are giving you life and help, th- which those are the spaces that lead you towards the sense of like, we are moving forward. This is good. And because at least for me and my personality, I know when I'm disconnected from people, I can feel myself. It's easier for me to my initial response will be a stronger form of cynicism within it. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling as connected to people right now as I want to be. I know that about myself. So what are the hopeful spaces? You're like, this is life. This is resurrection. This is good. And it's a part of like the energy of continuing to keep going and a part of the joy of, of this whole experience. Mm. What comes to mind, honestly, is just the the journey with particularity in the last three years of just some deep deep inner work and and doing some of what you're you're describing and some of what we're talking about but but within my own self right holding compassion for these parts of me and their own preservationist instincts and why they've developed you know this these fears and anxieties around change or vulnerability right spending time with, with that community within myself, right. These parts of myself, uh, holding, uh, pursuing it with the sense of curiosity, holding deep empathy and compassion for those parts of myself, literally having conversations with my five-year-old self or my eight-year-old self, right. Writing letters as my eight-year-old self talking about what feels confusing, what feels really hard and alienating. Um, and, and then, also showing up in those moments with my, from my truest self, right? Capital T, capital S, right? This, this essence that is, is um, inclusive of those things, but is also separate from, from them. And speaking a better word, um, that, that inner work that even as I try to language it now, it's hard to articulate fully because it's just, there's still deep, deep mystery to it. Um, It's deeply sacred work, I think. But I have found so much life in that space and, and resonate with what you're talking about in, in terms of 
deeper freedom and love and joy and peace and this sense of expanding energy within, that only increases um, when I continue to engage at this inner level. And then it also, uh, I think part of that conversation isn't just about you know my own self, but then it's necessarily issuing into these larger questions of how is this dynamic, you know, this idea of maybe wanting to self-preserve, right? Or wanting to limit vulnerability because out of fear, like, oh, looking, oh, I see where that's taking place in this system or this structure within my family because I first encountered it in myself, right? And so if I start from that place of self-understanding and self-compassion, then the ways that I engage in those other spaces um, is is very different. It's not with that oppositional energy. It's less likely, I'll say, to be with that oppositional energy because certainly, you know, none of us is is above or immune to to that at times. Um, but it also makes me hopeful for what for what can be because I see the deep levels of integration within my own self, within my own body, and my own work and story and and experience. Um, that that that's just been such a life giving space for me. And lastly, I'll say then when I am in spaces that are less life-giving, that maybe feel like they represent the energies of my five-year-old self who is really afraid, right? And deeply um, covered in shame. When I'm in in spaces or structures that that seem like they're operating from that that part of myself almost, um, they reflect that part of myself, I'm showing up in a different way. I'm not showing up as my five-year-old old self in that system or in that space, be it religious, political, whatever. I'm showing up as my 35-year-old self saying, no, there's a different way here. And even if the structures of that, you know, whatever that place is or that community seeks to kind of impinge on me, no, I'm going to take up my full 35-year-old self, true self space right here, no more, no less, and allow that to be a compass for me about how I navigate this space, whether I do navigate this space, right? Whether, no, this is too confining, this is too limiting, whether this is harmful for me and other people, or whether there's some room here for us to, to explore, to move towards more gracious and loving and redemptive ends, to participate in the healing of all things. If there's room for that, maybe I can still show up here, even if it doesn't reflect everything I, I long for it to be yet, right? Um, but do so in a way that is not is it betraying myself? Right. But it's still, I'm still fully congruent with and in alignment with who I am, who I am becoming and lead from that place. Um, that, that is the most life-giving space that I know to, to occupy and, and to invest in right now. Yeah. It's so good. It's, it's cool how empowering it feels when you do that when you're in a system where you can naturally revert to old ways. So basically what Mallory just said, everybody listening this when Christmas and Thanksgiving's coming up, you don't have to show up and revert back to five or eight year old selves. Cause it's crazy how systems want to do that to us without even realizing it. And we can allow it. You're like, why am I hiding again in the bathroom? I'm freaking 27. You know, I'm not eight anymore, but the experience of returning to spaces that might want to, in the atmosphere mold you back into an old sense of self that's still fear that's still doing this but to show me like i can live out of the truth of who i am and allow the responses of whoever's here to be exactly what it is and be okay that's a very empowering and liberating thing so for everybody listening i hope that's what you got from it at christmas you can be who you are in those spaces don't let them pull you back you're not eight anymore all right you can do it no, thank you. This was so good. I'm I'm glad that that we made this happen. So 
Mallory's book, Mallory Wyckoff, God is Amazon, other spaces. You can buy books. You can find that. And I think if the things we talked about today are glimpses and touching upon the things that she will write about with much more depth and much more of her own story that you're going to get getting in the book, then I hope for some of you, this conversation will feel like an open door into the further work. So go check that out. And yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for coming on. This was really good. Oh, thank you, Brian. Lovely to be with you. Okay. Yeah.